You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. My sermon today is called The Road to Jerusalem, a pre-Holy Week meditation. <laughs> the Road to Jerusalem. All right, back in January, all of the staff of Grace Mosaic, for the first time ever, all six of us. By the way, there's six people on staff at Grace Mosaic. Praise God. (laughs) We decided to to go together on a trip overnight that had never happened before. And we were headed to some part of Virginia, a couple hours south, some part of outside Charlottesville. Well, a few days before the trip was set to begin, the, the forecast started to shift, all right? And the forecast, the weather people said there's a substantial snowstorm. And not only that, the center of the storm, the bullseye of the storm, will be the place you are traveling into. All right? So we start texting about it. We start making some nervous calls. Should we bail? We made some preparation. Uh, But we decided, you know, it's probably not going to get too bad before we get to our house in the woods. Like, we're good. We're good, good. Pastor Russ, he grew up around the snow. He's comfortable. Let's do it. Let's do it. So Danielle gets out her little two-wheel drive truck, and she's got that. And then Russ got his big truck. Well, the circumstances changed, all right? The snow decided to come uh, when it wanted to come, which was about 50 minutes into our drive. And it started blanketing Interstate 66 about an hour into our drive. And it wasn't long before we started noticing car after car on the side of the road. We probably saw 15 to 20 cars wrecked on the side of the road that day. The the circumstances started growing just more and more stressful, but we slowly, and I do mean slowly, like five hours slow, trudged on until we finally reached the little town where we were staying. We have videos of the the pastoral residents pushing Danielle's truck (laughs) up snowy hills once it gets stuck over and over again. But here's the thing. Once those circumstances came upon us, when the going got tough, and honestly, we began to have some stress over the risks and the conditions, there was no point in trying to turn around. Because if we turned around, it would have been the same conditions back the other way. Nope. There was no point to try to go around. There was no side roads that were going to provide better conditions. No, we had to go through it. We couldn't turn around. We couldn't go around. We had to go through it. We couldn't reach the glory of the destination without the pain and stress and suffering of the process. It's a more lighthearted example of a serious reality about life. You cannot turn around. You cannot go around. You have to go through it. And what is the it I'm talking about? It's pain. It's suffering. The glory of the destination of our lives is preceded by the pain of the process. Howard Thurman, the great African-American theologian of the 20th century, longtime chaplain at Howard University, shout out, he says this about suffering in his book, The Disciplines of the Spirit. Suffering is universal for all mankind. There is no one who escapes it. It makes demands alike upon the wise and the foolish, the literate and the illiterate, the saint and the sinner. Men have tried to build all kinds of immunities against it, Much of the meaning of all human striving is to be found in the desperate effort of the spirit of man to build effective windbreaks against the storm of pain that sweeps across the human path. Man has explored the natural world around him, the heights and depths of his his own creative powers, 
all in an effort to find some means of escape, but there is no escape to be found. Suffering stalks man, never losing the scent, and soon or later seizes upon him to wreak its devastation. Woo! You can be a billionaire and buy a private island in the British Virgin Islands. That don't save you from the medical diagnosis. That don't save you from broken relationships and pain and shame. Money can't save you. Suffering stalks us all, says Howard Thurman. And when I say pain and suffering, your minds, of course, are going to the major examples, disease and tragedy and death and loss. And, of course, that is suffering, and we're all on a crash course with it one day. That is pain. But suffering and pain, I want to say, are much more everyday realities than that. I want to say that every day Christians are invited to take a journey into suffering and unto glory. It is in the mundane sufferings of our life and our response to those by faith that we build up our reflexes for the bigger sufferings that will come our way. Apostle Paul, Romans 8, says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we're children and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. You can't get to the glory of healthy community without moving into the pain of conflict, confrontation, vulnerable conversation. You can't get to the glory of a clean conscience without the pain of confession. You can't get to the glory of a healthier body without the burn of the workout. (laughs) Russ knows something about that. You can't get to the glory of a beautiful, fruitful garden without the pain of weeding and pruning. Kids, you can't get to the glory of a good test on your math exam, a good score on your math exam without the pain of the study. Am I right? You can't get to the glory of being a healthy leader without moving through the pain of taking responsibility. And coming into terms with your own failures and weakness and acknowledging them. You can't get to the glory of a healthy marriage without moving through a lot of pain, conflict, shame, vulnerability. You can't get to the glory of a just and equitable society without going through the painful process of telling the truth, making recompense and repair. That's America's problem. All right, that's another sermon. You can't. You can't get to the glory of social justice without the pain of standing for justice, which we know from history is often an extremely costly and painful process to go against the winds of of a land and its injustice and to stand for justice. You can't get to the glory of Easter without the pain of Good Friday. Holy Week, to talk about Holy Week for us as Christians is to talk about the ultimate realities of suffering and glory. You can't claim one without the other. You can't claim Easter without Good Friday. You can't claim Good Friday without Easter. If you claim to follow Jesus, get ready for a transformative path and interplay between suffering and glory. Well, to talk about the text, finally, in our Gospel of Luke today is to talk about suffering and is to talk about glory. So I want to walk through the road to Jerusalem by taking you down two roads, the road into suffering and the road into glory. The road into suffering and the road into glory. First, the road into suffering. A dominant metaphor that Luke uses when he writes his Gospel, when he's telling you the life, the story of Jesus is that of a journey. In fact, all the Gospels do this. 
Usually, the, the Gospel of Luke is divided into two big journeys, basically. There, first, there's Jesus' Galilean journey. He's from the region of Galilee in, in a town called Nazareth. That's in northwest Israel. And so, for the first chapters of Luke's Gospel, pretty much, He's there in the region of Galilee, going around from town to town. Sometimes he goes into Samaria and all of that. This is where we are in the journey. And that's those, the first part of the gospel when we begin to learn who Jesus is, what kind of ministry he has, what kind of radical uh, proclamation of the kingdom of God he's bringing. The question of the gospel of Luke is, is what happens when Jesus takes his radical ministry from Galilee into the cultural center, into the center of power that is Jerusalem. What will happen when Jesus' radical proclamation of the kingdom of God, what, what will happen when he gets to Jerusalem? Well, in one sense, the Gospel of Luke, there's no mystery about this. Because Jesus makes it clear from the very beginning of his life and ministry what is going to happen. Nothing takes Jesus by surprise. Already, if you read through the ninth chapter of Luke where we are, three things have happened that have been clues to this. Earlier in Luke 9, Jesus, he said, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And he said, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. When Jesus goes to the top of the mountain of transfiguration, he talks with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he's about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In Luke 9, 43, right before this, Jesus said this. He said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Many people try to paint a picture of Jesus and his suffering and crucifixion as if it's an accident of history. Jesus suffered because he was a revolutionary. He was a radical. It's a socio-political reality that Jesus, like a lot of workers for justice, was put to death. And while, of course, there are social and political dynamics at play, don't be fooled. Jesus willingly gave up his life. Jesus uses his authority and his power and his divine omniscience to know that he is on the path to suffering right from the beginning. Holy Week was predicted right at the beginning of Jesus' life. You shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. So when Jesus in our text here sets his face, and I want you to clue in on those words, sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he is internally rising up to meet the situation that is going to come before him. Because Jerusalem is the place where the brokenness of the world is going to meet the redemptive purposes of God but it's going to result in a tremendous amount of suffering and agony and pain for Jesus. When Luke uses the word set his face, he is almost certainly hearkening back to what was our Old Testament reading in the service today from the chapter of Isaiah, chapter 50, about a famous passage about a suffering servant, which says this. It says, I gave my back to those who strike, my cheeks to those who pull out the beard I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know I shall not be put to shame. When Jesus sets his face, 
and looks at the suffering before him, we see in his face a holy resilience. It is his posture of accepting the suffering that's coming his way and meeting it. That's a whole vibe that Jesus is giving us right here. And it's this picture of looking at suffering squarely and soberly and honestly and rising up to meet it, walking into it. So if Jesus gives us that vibe, that picture of accepting sufferings, well, as often happens, his disciples give us the contrasting picture. <laughs> they don't accept suffering or rejection. They resist it. So he's on the way to Jerusalem, right? And the quickest path, if you look at a map, to get from Galilee to Judea, where Jerusalem is, is to go through Samaria. But I don't have time to get into all this, but all my Bible study students out there will know that the Samaritans and the Israelites are not cool with one another. They're deeply divided from one another religiously, culturally. Many Israelites, in fact, chose not to even go into Samaria, even though it was the shortest route. They went around it, but not Jesus. He's already shown a radical embrace of Samaritans. You remember the woman at the well? You remember the story of the good Samaritan, right? So Jesus is going to go through Samaria. He sends messengers, part of his entourage, before him. And what their job is, they're going to move quickly. They're going to go and find a place of lodging, hospitality, food. This is common in the ancient world. People didn't have cell phones and text you and book their Airbnbs from their app. <laughs> they got to send messengers before them to prepare a place. And it was understood in the ancient world that hospitality was a core value. If a traveler comes, you accept that traveler. You do everything in your power. But he is offensively rejected. The Samaritans will have none of it. This is the equivalent of spitting in someone's face. It's painful, offensive rejection. And so in the face of that rejection, in the face of that suffering, <laughs> James and John, two of, the, two of the homies, they see it and they ask, Lord, do you want us? To tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? <laughs> the disciples, there's so much we could say about this statement. But let's just say that they, they prefer the strategy of what we might call culture war today. In the face of rejection of the way of Jesus, they assume, of course, that Jesus is offended. And they need to defend Jesus' honor by any means necessary. Right? And so, you know, they'll do whatever they have to do to see the kingdom of God have its day in the culture and in the time. For Jesus, though, ends do not justify means. You can't play with power and violence and greed to win a culture war for Jesus. He'll have none of it. And beyond that, this statement is so full of hubris. These are the same disciples that can't find themselves to be able to do anything. And they assume, Jesus, you want us to tell God to rain down fire from heaven? <laughs> it's laughable. But Jesus didn't laugh about it. He rebuked them. He rebuked them because that was not to be the way that his kingdom would go forward. Absolutely not. The disciples have no category for this. They don't have a category for both having power and authority and accepting rejection and suffering. Jesus had a category for having agency in his life, but an agency that moved him into a place of rejection. The disciples basically, you know, they live by the mindset of, if you can avail yourself of a more comfortable life with less rejection, then why wouldn't you? If you can win and be great, then why wouldn't you? 
If you can humiliate and retaliate your enemy, then why wouldn't you? But they, like us, obviously were not listening to Jesus very closely when he had just taught them three chapters earlier. When he said, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you on account of me and spurn your name as evil. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. When Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To someone who slaps you on the cheek, offer the other also. When I think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a beautiful and broken place like Washington, D.C., I think of seeing us as a people formed into a strong but meek people, able to be rejected for following after Jesus, but never in an insecure, vengeful, whiny, or bitter way. Some congregations are going to be tempted, as we have seen so many times, to be bitter and vengeful towards the outside world that rejects the way of Jesus. That is not the calling. Some congregations will be tempted to capitulate and syncretize their faith and sort of muddle down Jesus because he's offensive. And they're tempted to syncretize their faith to fit in. Neither of these approaches will do. Ultimately, the disciples do not accept rejection and suffering. They try to escape it. They refuse. They refuse to rise up and set their face towards the suffering in front of them. And so do we. We follow this tactic in one way or another in many ways. Because every single thing in our culture tells us, live it up. Enjoy. Cut off difficult people in your life who don't really help you to flourish. Ignore your haters. Don't put up with people. We have disordered loves, too. We actually want to be comfortable. We want our life to be filled with affluence. We want our life to be secured against the possibility of suffering. We want to provide the best for our kids, sanitize their life to where they'll never meet discomforts or inconveniences. We avoid the place of conflict and pain because we are afraid, some of us are very afraid of conflict, and to move into important and conflictual discussions we don't want to do. If you ever want to learn how to avoid conflict, just come talk to me. I'm very good at it. <laughs> I'm a recovering conflict-avoidant person, all right? But Jesus calls us into the places of conflict and pain. Some of us don't go to the place of pain or rejection because we are more interested in an idea of the cross than we are in cruciformity. We like the message of the gospel. It's grace and forgiveness and love. But we often stop short of our participation in the way of the cross. We like to preach the cross. We don't like to live the cross. Philippians 1.29, Paul says, It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's twofold. If you're going to preach the cross, you've got to live the cross. We don't like suffering and pain because we have accepted our own kinds of prosperity gospels, gospels of success, that obviously Jesus wants your life to be a comfortable success. He wants you to be an achiever. He wants you to be profitable. He would never bring storms and suffering and poverty in your path. Of course not. But that's not the message of the kingdom. Because a core value of the kingdom of God is not success, brothers and sisters. It is faithfulness. It is faithfulness. But Jesus 
is driven by a different force. He's driven by the Spirit who has driven him into all sorts of trials and suffering. So we have to be driven too. But why is the disciples thinking misguided? Because in God's kingdom, the road to suffering is the road to glory. You cannot turn around. You cannot go around. You have to go through. And so that leads me to my second and closing point today, the road to glory. The road to glory. As I said earlier, it reminds me again that to reach the glory of the destination of our staff retreat, a beautiful, idyllic, snowy house, a cabin in the woods, we had to go through the treacherous trek down Interstate 66. This shares much overlap with other road trips in my life that I've taken sometime recently in my life, where on a 14 to 16 hour road trip every Christmas break, I am with my three precious children in a precious minivan on precious stretches of highway, going through many painful moments. I won't detail them, but they're bad sometimes. <laughs> But all of the trials and tribulations of those road trips somehow start to fade away once we are in the arms of Grandma. It seemed for but a moment <laughs> that we were going through drive throughs and playing in the parking lots of horrible gas stations once we're in the comforting arms of Mama. That's right. Jesus tells stories like this when he was preparing for his beloved, when he was preparing his beloved friends for his death. He says, he said to them, you know what, a little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while you will see me. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And then he gives this image. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So you also have sorrow now, but you will, I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. That's what Jesus said. Now, I've been a birth partner at three natural births. We did the midwives and the doulas and all the crunchy birth stuff. <laughs> and I can honestly say as a man, and I'm, I'm okay to say this, I have no clue what it feels like to give birth. All right, I have no clue the agony and the pain of labor. And I accept that role in my life. <laughs> but I have witnessed what Jesus is talking about. This transition from agony and pain to joy. When a baby has come and the environment has changed. I've witnessed that change. Paul says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, for Jesus, his suffering is never detached from his glory. For you, in all of our lives, our road to glory is never to be uh, detached from suffering, but is a road that leads to glory. Glory is right from the beginning of our passage today, right in verse 51, when it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is a reference already to Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. 
He's predicted it already. He knows what the end of the story will be. But that does not reduce the stress and the agony and the pain of his experience and walking into it. Because even as I talk about this, even as I talk about suffering leading into glory, I realize that there's a lot of pain in this room. And there's a lot of uncomfortability with the interplay between saying suffering leads to glory. Because it it can sound like it's really cheapening the pain of suffering. Because we, there's a lot of thin theologies about sufferings out there. And I want to explore those just in two brief ways. Triumphalism and minimization. Triumphalism and minimization. Triumphalism is this mindset that declares that we already have the victory. That Jesus wants us to win and, and be above suffering. So this vision of the good life with Jesus is about material comforts and security and health and wealth. That does not square at all with the teachings of Jesus. That does not square at all with the reality of the fate of Jesus himself. Do you realize that the heroes of the early church were martyrs? Literally, the people who nonviolently gave up their life to the sword, to the fire, to the animals, to the wild animals. Those were seen as the models for faithfulness to Jesus. In a sense, it's a kind of triumphalism, but it is not a worldly triumphalism. Might is not right, (laughs) right? It doesn't square at all with the stories of Polycarp, those like Polycarp, who was an ancient disciple of the Apostle John, who got brought into an arena, and and the the pro-council over the ceremony to put him to death, he said, he said, denounce Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And he prayed right before he died. He said, O Lord, God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, I give thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing in the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life. Against this mindset of triumphalism to where we are supposed to get beyond suffering, the theology of the New Testament over and over again is that we are to share in suffering. We are to see our suffering as a holy participation with Jesus himself who has gone before us. But that does not minimize the agony itself. Those of you in this room who are going through intense suffering right now have maybe, as I said, are bristling at this idea because it sounds like it's just minimizing the pain. Oftentimes, people will minimize suffering because they can't emotionally sit in the weight of it. So they fill up the space. You know what it feels like of sitting with someone who just fills the space with words. Well, just be grateful for the time that you guys had together before he died. Or... It could be worse. But that, again, is not the way of Jesus. Even in in the midst of his own suffering, Jesus didn't minimize his suffering or minimize the hope of his glory. Jesus wept. He suffered. He really suffered in real agony, really suffered betrayal, rejection, really suffered oppression, injustice. Anything that could be suffered, he suffered. The Bible itself is full of lament and mourning. Over half of the psalms are psalms of lament, I need to remind you. We're going to chant Psalm 22 on Good Friday, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Jesus does not minimize suffering. He doesn't cheapen it for the sake of victory and glory. I think one of the hardest things for us when we are in the path of suffering, and I know many of your stories in this room, and suffering has just come upon you again and again and again, is that you can only sometimes see your suffering in cycles and circles, and you can't see that it's going anywhere. You might be saying, all I've been doing is suffering, and I feel like I'm just in a vortex sinking lower and lower. But in that place of despair, you need to hear that the end of life is not meaningless suffering, that suffering will find its vindication in the resurrection. Suffering will find its vindication like it did for Jesus, who drank suffering to the dregs, but yet there was Easter morning. But when you are in cycles of suffering, you need to see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. But you also need to see Jesus in a different garden, because Gethsemane was not the only garden in Jesus' life. <laughs> there was also the Garden of Golgotha, where his body was laid. That was a garden of victory. That was a garden of glory. That was a garden of hope. You know a Savior. You have a Savior who knows the gardens of agony and the gardens of glory. You will find yourself in both of those gardens. You don't know the, the path of your life. None of you do. You could walk out of this sanctuary today and for one reason or another find yourself in a garden of agony. Tomorrow might be the day for you. But we have a Savior who is in charge and in control and has lived through both of those gardens. When we live our lives faithfully, we find ourselves in solidarity with a suffering and a glorified Savior. We are in solidarity both with Jesus' suffering and his glory. And we can choose to be in solidarity with this Jesus because he chose to be in solidarity with us. He took on our flesh to suffer as we suffer but also to suffer in our place. Why did he do this? So that he could bring us to glory. This is the heart of the gospel, and this is the heart of redemptive love. Think of all the stories that you can, of all the movies that you love, that talk about this kind of self-sacrificial love, where one who doesn't have to willingly moves into the place of suffering on behalf of other people. A few weeks ago, it made the news, the Ukrainian soldier who blew up himself on a bridge to blow up that bridge to stop Russian troops from advancing. And so many news outlets across the world reported it because it was a remarkable act of self-sacrifice. I think of women like Viola Liuzzo, who was a housewife and a mother of five during the civil rights movement, a comfortable, affluent white woman in suburban Detroit, who heeded the call of Dr. Martin Luther King in Selma, got in her car, drove from Detroit to ferry people back and forth from the march. She herself was gunned down on a highway right by where I grew up, by the KKK, and was killed. And we love stories like that. We're moved by them because they're at the very heart of this interchange of redemptive love of one who doesn't have to, taking the place of suffering for the glory of other people. Suffering is where we come to the end of ourselves, but it also is the possibility of great hope, great growth for the sake of another person. 
Because Jesus wanted to see you in all of your glory, he set his face to go to Jerusalem for your sake. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and suffer betrayal for our lives. Because Jesus wanted to see us become glorious tellers of truth. He set his face to go to Jerusalem and suffer violence for our violence. Because he wanted us to see us become glorious, compassionate, nonviolent, gentle, gentle witnesses to his kingdom. Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem and suffer injustice for all of the world's injustice. To bring us to the glory of justice. Jesus set his face to suffer mockery for our mockery. To suffer from greed for our greed. To suffer from weakness for our weakness. To suffer from pride for our pride. Shame for our shame. And Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to suffer punishment. Taking away the punishment that belonged to us. To bring us to the glory of forgiveness. Jesus set his face to rise up and meet death itself for our death. To bring us to the glory of eternal life. That is the reality of Holy Week that we are about to experience. This glorious interchange between suffering and glory. And as Jesus suffered for you and for your glory, he caused you to participate in this pathway. To suffer for the glory of others. To set your face towards those hard and painful things and painful places in your life and in our city. Those places of pain, of rejection, of resistance, of struggle, so that you might share in his glory. But not only that, so that you might bring other people into his glory. He calls you. You can set your face towards the pain of conflict, confrontation, vulnerable conversation for the glory of community in this place. You can set your face towards the pain of confession and repentance for the glory of a free conscience and for growth and grace. You can set your face towards the pain of letting go of your money and your possessions to be freed from their trap and freed into the glory of generosity. You can set your face to the suffering of standing up for justice, to sinking into what actually matters in life, to sinking into the weightier matters of reality. You can set your face towards trials, towards afflictions, towards diseases, and towards loss. They will come our way. They will. Because Jesus sets you onto a path of glory with his suffering, solidation with him. And you can set your face towards death itself because of the glory of the resurrection, knowing that the end of the story is not swirling and meaninglessness, but that Jesus has freed us and brought us into an eternal kingdom. My question for you as we end this sermon and as we go into Holy Week, is what do you need to set your face towards today? What do you need to set your face towards in this life? What point of pain is Jesus calling you to sink deeper into that you may experience the depths of his glory and the hope of his resurrection? He leads the way, and we are in solidarity with him. May we grow in this way and deeper. Let me pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.